And so a little bit of context as we're kind of wrapping up chapter 17. And so we find out in verse 1 that the hour has finally arrived. The hour that Jesus was preparing for. The hour that the whole world was anticipating where Jesus would go to the cross. He would rescue and restore sinful creatures to their creator. And yet before the cross, Jesus stops in a sense at the doorway and he prays. He he prays to the Father and he cries out for help. And Jesus prays to the Father for, 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 for the Father to glorify Jesus. In other words, Jesus wants his goodness to be clearly seen, displayed, acknowledged, and celebrated as he goes to the cross. And then Jesus prays for his disciples that the Father would protect them, that the Father would sanctify his disciples. In other words, what he is saying, that they would remain faithful to the word, that they would cling to the truth. And as they cling to the truth as strangers in this world, that the Lord would sanctify them, set them apart for the mission, that they would remain faithful to the mission as bearing witness that Jesus came from God. And so today, as we look at the third part that Jesus is praying for, we see that Jesus is now praying for not just his disciples, but for all of those who will believe the words of his disciples. In other words, he's praying for us as believers, for believers throughout the generations. And the two things that he's going to pray for is that he's going to pray that we are united, that as we are one in him, that we will be one with one another. And then the second part is that we will also be reunited with him. So, So let's look at our text and look in this unity and this reunion with Christ. Verse 20 says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundations, before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. So the first thing that Jesus prays for is he's praying for all believers to be united in him. Now, now if you think about it, the hour has arrived. The wait of the world's sin is about to be placed on the shoulders of Jesus. He is about to go to the cross. And all the things that Jesus could have in mind, one of them he had in mind is the unity of his people. And we see this idea of being one mentioned three times in our text. And we see that the purpose of this unity of the believers being one is so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son and that the world may know that the Father loves them as He loves the Son. And here's my point. If this unity is so important that Jesus is talking about, what does this unity look like? 
So as we look at our text, it's not going to be explicit, but rather it is going to be implied throughout this text what this unity looks like. So, so if you're taking notes, the, the very first thing what we see about what this unity looks like is that unity is a shared commitment to the word. Unity is a shared commitment to his word. In other words, Jesus is not praying for a unity that's based on personal preferences or personal opinions of who they think God is, but rather unity is based on who God really is revealed through his word. And you're like, now how how do you get that from the text? Great question. The reason I get it from the text, look at verse 20 again. Verse 20 says this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. In other words, we are a people who believe in Jesus through who? Through the word of the disciples. And then you look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. In other words, the word glory that we've already talked about last week is a display of God's goodness. In other words, this word used here is in a sense of a revelation. So what did Jesus do to his disciples? He revealed the glory of God to them. He displayed God's goodness and revealed it to them through his ministry, through his works and his words. And then the disciples took that revelation and declared it to others through the word. And the result is divine revelation. And as we've received this divine revelation of who God is and what he came to do and the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we get to participate in it, that results in a unity of God's people, a unity in the triune God. And so our unity begins first when we hear the truth of God conveyed through the word of God by the disciples And our unity continues that's based on truth. And so we are united because we share a commitment to his word. And this is why the apostle John in his letter in 1 John 1 verse 3, this is what he says. What we've seen and heard we declare to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ. In other words, what he's saying is like what we've seen, what we heard, what we declare to you in word. We've written it down for believers to pass on from generations so that you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is ultimately with the triune God, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So in other words, we are united as we're committed to the word of God for God revealed himself through his word. And that unity is not just with one another, but it's also with the triune God. And we see an example, like when you go through the book of Acts, what did the church do when they were the most united? You go to Acts 2, verses 40 to 42, you see that the church had everything in common. They shared everything they had. And what, is it, what, did, what does it tell us they did? Acts 2, 42, and they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teachings, to the word of the disciples, as they devoted themselves to this word, it created more of a unity inside of them and among them. And think about this. When the people of God gathers, 
when we as believers gather, we're all different. We're different people, different stories, different backgrounds, different interests, different pains, different hurts, different sin, different baggages. And yet when we gather, what do we gather around? We gather around the the Word of God. We sing the Word. We pray the Word. We read the Word. We proclaim the Word. We see the Word in action through the sacraments. And in the Word, what are we constantly reminded of? That we were all, regardless of where you're from, that we were all sinners in need of a Savior. And yet God has lavished His grace upon us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and have saved us. And we have received all of it by faith. And this is what we rally around. And what that means for us is our unity is not based on a bunch of preferences, a bunch of styles, or a bunch of models, or what we like and don't like, or personal opinions of who we think God is or not, but rather our unity is based on a shared commitment to the Word as we gather around the Word as the Lord has revealed Himself to us through His Word. And when the Word of God is neglected, unity dissipates. But when the Word of God is rightly emphasized, rightly committed to, there we find unity. And it's not just, let me put a little little footnote here. It's not just because we see people use the Word to divide and to use the word to prove that you're wrong and I'm right. That's not how the word should be used because the word is not about who's right or who's wrong because we're all wrong. The word is about who? It's about God. It is his story as he revealed himself to us and when we're committed to who he is and what he's done, we approach the word with humility and we do what it says. And when the Bible is clear, we stand firm. But in certain areas, it's not very clear. What do we do? We, in a sense, hold it loosely because God and His sovereignty decided that's not that important for us. It's not a full revelation of God because the reality of it is you could not handle a full revelation. However, it is a sufficient revelation of God for us to know God and to experience God and to walk with God. And when we're committed to the Word, that means we're committed to knowing God revealed in His Word and we approach it in humility and we attempt to do what it says. And that's the first thing about unity. Second, unity, we see in the scripture what this unity looks like, not only is a shared commitment to his word, but if you're taking notes, is also a shared understanding of our new identity. This unity is a shared understanding of our new identity. Look at verse 23. Look at this new identity. I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be completely one. What's happened in our text, and I don't have time to read the whole text, but Jesus is describing the foundational relationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. They are united. Then he begins to describe the relationship between the believer and the Son. The Son is in the believer, and the believer is in the Son. 
And as a result of it, the Father is in the believer, and the believer is in the Father. That's why in verse 21, Jesus says, may they also be in us, a.k.a. be in God the Father and God the Son. So in other words, there is definitely similarities between the relationship the Father and the Son and our relationship with the triune God. But it's not exactly the exact same same way for the Father and the the, the Son are distinct persons, but they're eternally one in essence. And what we've been done is we've been brought into this relationship by faith. We are placed in Christ, and the Spirit of Christ now lives inside of us. And this unity that we have is a unity of a new identity and a new position, which means since we are in Christ, since you are in Christ, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you've confessed Him as your Lord and Savior, you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and I am in Christ, and Christ is in me, and we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. Now we no longer relate to one another as strangers, but as family. How many times does Jesus use the word Father? Like, look at our text, like, I think it's like three, four times, which means he's emphasizing what? That we are family. We are in the family of God through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That means we no longer relate to one another as strangers, but we care for one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who have received a new position and a new identity. And this nature of this unity is modeled and enabled by the triune God. And just as the Father and the Son are distinguishable yet perfectly unified, so we are different. And yet we are perfectly united in and through Christ. The the verse we used for, for confession and assurance um, I thought it was very interesting. I did not write the liturgy, but it was in my notes here. Um, Paul was writing to the church in Philippi that was dealing with conflict and disagreements. And so Paul writes to them and, and helps them to deal with this conflict and this disagreement, in a sense to help them to be united. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 to 4. He says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So what does he say? Please, guys, stop fighting. Be united. Be one in spirit, because remember what Christ has done for you. But then he continues, he gives instructions. He says, what do you need to do? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should, not look, not, uh, should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Don't fight, don't argue, but instead humble yourself. Consider others as more important than yourself. Stop looking out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Why can we do that? You're like, well, that's kind of weird to think others is more important than you, but really it's not. Because if you are in Christ, you are secure in Christ, your identity is in Christ, and because you are in Christ and you see others in Christ, you can in a sense think they are more important than you without having to demean yourself and push yourself down. 
You can be secure and confident in your identity in Christ and still look at his people as more important than you. Why? Because both of you are in Christ. But then he says, how do we adopt this, this attitude of humility and of serving others? He says this then in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And in our assurance part, we, 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 did, we saw the humiliation of Jesus, how he came as a servant and how he humbled himself even to the point of death on a criminal cross. And yet as a result of it, he is highly exalted where every tongue, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the point that Paul is making is that the only way we can draw closer to one another, the only way we can grow in our Christian unity is to become more like Jesus. And how do we become more like Jesus? It doesn't start with you trying harder, doing better. It starts with you understanding your new identity in Jesus Christ. In other words, the only way for you to become like Christ is for you to be for your identity to be in Christ, for you to understand that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And that's why throughout the New Testament, when you read a command, it's always since we are in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us and the new position now you have in Christ, this is what now you can do. And I do think part of the reason why we struggle to be united is that we don't fully understand or maybe we don't hold on to or maybe we're quick to forget the new identity we have in Christ, the position we share in Christ. What causes this unity at times is when we feel threatened or when we feel looked down upon or when we feel like we're not being considered or we're being neglected. And what, what sometimes it causes is insecurity and fear and the only way to fight that insecurity and fear is to continually fight that lie with a truth. Like, no, I'm in Christ. And that person who I'm having conflict with is not my enemy because they are in Christ. Our position is the same. We both have received a new identity. And so we can have our differences, and that's okay. But what we have in common is Christ and what he's done for us and accomplished for us and the new identity we have in a sense. It is his, this new position in him that enables us and empowers us to be united. And understanding this new identity we have in Christ because of Christ is essential in our pursuit of unity. The third thing, if you're taking notes, unity is not just a shared commitment to the Word of God, a shared understanding to our new identity, but now a, a unity is a shared pursuit of sacrificial love. A shared pursuit of sacrificial love. Look at verse 23 again. I think 23 is a big deal. Look at it. It says this. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one that the world might know, may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Just, just think about this. God the Father loves you like he loves the Son. He doesn't just tolerate you. Well, I gotta like you because my Son really loves you. no. He loves you like he loves the son. 
and his love for the son is a perfect love, a complete love. And that's how God loves you. And then verse 26, look at verse 26. I made, your, I made your name known to them, and I will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Again, it reiterates this, that the love you have for me may be in them and I in them. Like here's, and the reason why I, I, I connected it to a pursuit of sacrificial love, the reason why we have a hard time to love others is because it's a failure to understand and to believe that God loves us. Why do you treat other people badly when they treat you badly? Because you want justice, because you feel like nobody loves you, nobody cares for you. And if you don't stand up for your own right, nobody is going to do it. And yet when you understand that even in my injustice and even in my pain and my hurt, God the Father loves me like he loves the Son, that allows me now to pursue sacrificial love. But we're quick to forget that God loves us. And so many times we treat people the way we think God treats us. The second they do something wrong and they fall short of our standards, what do we do? We cast them out because that's what we think God treats us. And the only way for, for, for them to earn our love back is now for them to behave in a way that, that will kind of earn our favor back because we think that's how God relates to us. But what Jesus is saying is no. The Father loves you like he loves the Son, which means is there a moment in their existence, which they've always existed, where his love was any less or any more. No, which means there is never a moment when the Father's love for you, regardless of your performance and your behavior, is any less or any more. His love for you is perfect and complete. And it's because of this understanding that God loves me like he loves the son and this new identity and this new position I have in Christ. I am in fellowship with the triune God. Now I can sacrificially love one another. And this is why the New Testament have all these commands. Love one another because God has loved you. Love one another because you are in Christ. And we read in the New Testament, bear one another's burdens, instruct one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, submit to one another, encourage one another, provoke one another, not to anger, but to love and good works. And when Christ is praying this for his people, he's not praying for us to embrace a concept, but a conduct. He wants our lives to be marked by unity, a unity that leads us to walk hand in hand with one another. And so when a family member hurts, brother or sister hurts, we all hurt. When a sister feels rejected, we accept her. When a brother stumbles, we pick him up. Unity requires sweat. It's a pursuit of sacrificial love. It takes energy. And yet we can do that because the Father loves me like he loves the Son. Last one, and then I'm done, almost done. Shared unity is a dedication to the mission of Christ. It's a dedication to the mission of Christ. Now, Again, it's not explicit in the text, 
But what's the context of this whole prayer? This whole, the context of this whole prayer for his disciples and for the believers is the mission. For the disciples, as they hold on to the truth, they will be set apart in the world and be witnesses of Jesus to the world so that the world may know that God has sent Jesus. And by the words of the disciples, people will believe in Jesus. And in our context, when the believers are united, when they have a shared commitment to the word of God, when they understand their new identity, when they pursue sacrificial love to one another, this will be a powerful testimony to the world. That's why the the reason for their unity or the result of the unity, look at verse 21 again. It's so that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This unity is a supernatural work that points to a supernatural reason that Jesus lives in them and the Father loves them. And when we rally around the mission, of bearing witness to who Christ is and what he's done, of making disciples. It's, in a sense, our unity with one another that does it. Thomas Matton said this, division in the church breeds atheism in the world. The good news is the reverse is also true. A unified church reveals powerful, life-changing truths to the world. It reveals to the world, Jesus came from God. And oh my, God must love them. We need to rally around the mission. The mission is to make disciples. We need to stop rallying around the how to make disciples. Just make disciples. And the most simplest way is be unified. Commit yourself to the word of God. Understand your new identity in Christ. Pursue sacrificial love and continue the mission of displaying and declaring the goodness of God and the unified body of the church. As we wrap it up, we experience this unique union and fellowship with Christ, with the triune God. But the reality of it is it's, it's a shadow. It's a little appetizer for what is waiting for us. And and that's why Jesus, in in verse 24, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to be where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Like like Jesus in a sense, like I, I can't wait for them to be with me, to see my full glory and my splendor that is unveiled to see the full display of God's glory and God's goodness. And that will come one day. But for right now, we get to see a taste of it through his word, through the indwelling spirit revealing truth to it. But in the future, we will experience a full joy, a full delight of unhindered fellowship with the triune God and with one another. What a privilege and what a promise. So, so, so let, let, let's wrap it up here. In my notes, uh, I made a little note 
that to say, do not get on your soapbox and talk about how the church is divided because it's not helpful, and that's what I'm going to do. Let's quit it. It's not helpful talking about how divided the church is, not forced part, but just the global church. Let, let's stop. It's not helpful. Let's talk about what can we do in pursuing unity. And that's what I want to do, just give brief instructions. How do we pursue unity when we're all different, different backgrounds, different styles, different stories, different preferences, different beliefs at times? How do we pursue unity in the midst of it? I think the first thing, it starts with being committed to the Word of God. And when I say be committed to the Word of God is, are you reading it? Are you studying it? Are you pursuing knowing the Lord in it? Not committed to the word to, to kind of beef up your arguments of why I'm right and you're wrong, but committed to the word of knowing God and being humble in it, saying, I might be wrong in this. I don't know everything about this, but I am committed. And I hope you are committed in studying the word and teaching our children the word of God so that they may know God and experience God and enjoy the incredible salvation he's provided for us. The second thing is I think we need to continue to grow in our understanding of this new identity. Like one of the doctrines that have been abandoned by the church is our unity in Christ. We've been so focused on what we need to do and how we need to get there, but when you see through all the, throughout the New Testament this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, even through the apostles' writings. What they're talking about is we are united with Christ. Christ is in me, and I am in Christ. It's a mystery. I don't fully understand it, but we need to grow in our understanding of it. And we need to see one another as being in Christ. You're no longer my enemy. You're no longer my thorn in my side that is irritating or annoying me. Because of your faith, you are in Christ. Christ is in you. You have been buried with Christ. You have died with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ. And understanding this new identity and this new position give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in who Christ is and what he's accomplished. Can you imagine when we engage one another with that understanding and that humble confidence third thing is this let's pursue sacrificial love i love how that prayer was adapted from from philippians chapter 2 verse 2 to 4 because if we have to be honest how many of us do we consider others as more important than ourselves how many of us do we uh, th 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 think of or or sacrifice with it or look out for their own interest over mine how many of us are we honest and, and humbling ourselves as a servant? It takes work. And yet the good news of that work is because we are in Christ and because what Christ has done, we have his enabling power where we can love sacrificially. And so let's love one another sacrificially. When we engage in community with one another, or when we even get in an argument, can you imagine how that argument would change when you think the person you're arguing with is more important than you and smarter than you? 
changes the ball game. And it's not doesn't mean you have to be a doormat. No, you're not a doormat. Why? You're in Christ. Christ is in you. And the last one is let's rally around the mission of making disciples. And part of making disciples and rallying around the mission is pursuing unity. I, I, I was at a, a conference this, this weekend and the guy made a comment about like, let's not let the tail wag the, 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 the tail wag the dog. Like let's not get caught up with methods and models. What's our mission? Make disciples. Do whatever it takes. Make disciples. Let's rally around the mission. What's our mission? Make disciples. And at our church, we've kind of defined not how to make a disciple, but what we think a disciple actually looks like. And so we say, hey, our mission is to make disciples who have good theology. In other words, they have a gospel understanding. They know who God is and what, Christ, what, what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, and the implications of that. Well, we believe a disciple lives in biblical community because we are sons and daughters. We're a family. We live together. And the last one is we believe a disciple is on mission. A disciple makes other disciples. Whatever that looks like for you, rally around it. Let's pursue that together. And I do believe one of our most powerful testimonies and what we see Jesus pray about, that when we are united, when the world sees us in all of our differences and all of our different styles and preferences, when we start putting that aside, and we unite ourselves around the word. What a powerful witness to the world. Man, Jesus must be from God because this is supernatural. Man, they must be loved because they clearly love one another. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this new identity and this new position that you have given us in Jesus Christ. God, I'm still kind of stumped by this truth that you love me like you love the Son. I'm not, I, I just, I don't fully understand it. Can you help me to understand it and to grasp it and to be overwhelmed by it? Can you help us as a church to understand it and fully grasp it, that you love us perfectly and completely. Help us to be a church that's united. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. As we get ready to sit at the table, this table was never meant to be individually pursued. This table was also always meant for the church to come and sit together. Because what does this table remind us of? It reminds us that we are brothers and sisters. We're sons and daughters of the king. Not because of what we've done, not because of what we've been earned, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. It unifies us. We rally around it. What a great Savior we have who give, gave us his body and shed his blood to pay for all of our sins and wash us as white as snow. But then the second thing it reminds us of, this is only a shadow of the real wedding banquet, the feast that is waiting for us. 
where there will be no longer faith required. It will no longer have to remind, because where's Jesus? (laughs) He's right there. I can see him. I'm eating with him. And he knows me, and he's glad I'm here, and he loves me. What a day that would be. And so as we distribute these elements, I want you to meditate on these truths that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And one day we will sit in the presence of Christ and we will feast and say, behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. What a glorious Savior we have. What a joy, what a delight. Let's go ahead and and distribute these elements and you go ahead and meditate upon these truths. I want to read the passage of Philippians 2 verse 5. Don't worry, it won't be another sermon. I'm just going to read it. Receive it, meditate upon it. It says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross what did he accomplish on that cross he took all of my sins and your sins and paid for it in full and it's for this reason verse 9 that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' body was given to you. Eat it in remembrance of him. His blood was shed for you, bought you, washed you. The new covenant now you have Drink it in remembrance of him. Can you just take time right now and just thank the Lord? Can you praise his name and lift him up? Lord, we thank you for the work that you have done on our behalf. Thank you that you have bought us and that you have saved us. Lord, we lift your name up on high. We praise you, we exalt you. For you are worthy of all praise and all honor and all glory. Lord, help us to understand the incredible work that you have done on our behalf. And may it stir in us gratitude and a greater love for you. For you love us perfectly, completely. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and can we worship the Lamb of God?